Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 27th, 2023, on uh, a rather chilly San Francisco morning. It's hailing here. Chile, of course, for San Francisco, not for the South Seas. Uh, we did a show last year uh, on Charles Darwin and his travels in the South Seas. It seemed heroic at the time in terms of what he did, um, edging closer to uh, the Antarctic. Um, but, of course, there were many more heroic British adventurers at the turn of the 20th century, in particular... Uh, a man called Ernest Shackleton, who sailed a ship called the Endurance in 1912, uh, part of the Imperial Trans-Antarctic uh, Expedition. It's a remarkable story, uh, the Endurance. It sank, uh, but Shackleton survived. Uh, we lost the ship for many years, but it's been rediscovered by my guest today, who in many ways... Um, is the Shackleton of our age, uh, Menson Bound. Uh, some people call him the uh, Indiana Jones of the deep. He has recovered the ship, and not only that, but he's written a book about it, The Ship Beneath the Ice. Menson Bound was born in the Falkland Islands, and he uh, divides his time between the Falklands and Oxford. He's joining us from Oxford. Uh, Menson... Um, it's always an honor to talk to the Indiana Jones of the deep. Is there any truth to that, or is that a little bit of an exaggeration? It was something that Discovery Channel cooked up about 20 years ago. They did a series on my work, and that was their tagline. I used to hate it, but these days, you know, my kids like it. And, you know, I think it's funny. There are worse things to be called. Uh, you've, you've done a lot of uh, excavation work. You, you found the... Uh, the Imperial German East Asian Squadron, all sorts of other things. What drove you to this Shackleton discovery, perhaps the most remarkable achievement of your many achievements in your life? Why were you driven to find this boat? Well, that goes right back to childhood. I was uh, pretty much weaned on stories of Shackleton. I come from the Falkland Islands, and my generation down there were all Shackleton people rather than Scott people. Scott had never been to Falkland. Shackleton had been there for, well, three times it was. And uh, on at least one of those occasions, he stayed with my uh, great-grandfather, who ran a kind of a sort of a boarding establishment come bar on the waterfront of Port Stanley called The First and Last. And the story from my family is that he left without paying his bills, which is, you know, it is plausible, knowing Shackleton. Um, I don't know if it's true, though. But we do have, still within the family, the, the visitor's book uh, with his signature in it, uh, along with two of his comrades. And then when I got older, I was, I was given a Sunday school prize for um, Sunday school attendance uh, when I was about, um, I would guess, about eight, something like that. It would have been 15, 59 or 60. And it was a book about Shackleton. And I was a precocious kid, and I actually read it. And then later on, when I was a teenager in the 60s, my parents, my mother had a bookshop in Port Stanley, and she had Lansing's great book about Shackleton. And I read that. 
and that was it. I was a, a Shackleton enthusiast for life, but did I ever think I'd be part of this amazing, incredible team that went out there and found the wreck? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's an incredible story. You say, um, mentioned that there were Scott people and Shackleton people. Not everyone will understand uh, why. Explain this rivalry, this historic rivalry between Shackleton and Scott. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. In a nutshell, they were both, they both wanted to find, get to the South Pole first. Scott's great expedition was in uh, 1901 on the Discovery. And Shackleton was on board that ship as third officer, as I recall. And Shackleton was actually part of uh, Scott's dash for the pole. Uh, they never got there. Uh, There's a lot of suffering, cold, hunger, scurvy, that kind of thing. And the two fell out. Shackleton became, I suppose, what you might call a kind of uh, charismatic malcontent on the project. And he was shipped out of Antarctica early. And after that, uh, he fell out with Scott big, big time because Scott wrote his, uh, his account of the expedition in which he described how Shackleton had been um, pulled on one of the sledges. In other words, he was made to look kind of, um, you know, not, not terribly uh, like a polar hero. And he didn't like that one bit. Uh, I think soon after that, he resolved to have a crack at the pole himself. So there was always this huge rivalry between them. And they went on until, well, I was going to say till Scott died. But in fact, it went on afterwards. Was there a class element to this rivalry between Shackleton and Scott? Um, uh, Scott looks much more a, a member of the establishment than Shackleton. I know was, Shackleton was originally from Ireland. Uh, that's true. Yeah, uh, I mean, um, yeah, Scott was from the uh, upper echelons of British society, highly educated, an officer of the Navy. And Shackleton was born in, in Ireland, as you said. He spent the first 10 years of his life there and then moved to South London. He did actually try to get in the Navy, but didn't succeed. Um, so, yeah, uh, there, there might have been a little bit of class snobbery there. This was known, uh, this period, as the, uh, as the uh, heroic age of Antarctic exploration. What was it about the Antarctic that brought out the heroic in explorers like Shackleton and Scott? Yeah, really. Uh, well, the big challenge was uh, this was the unknown continent and uh, reaching the South Pole was the big objective for many, many years there. And if you wanted fame and fortune, which a lot of these explorers did, then the best way at that time to that was to become a polar explorer. I think in Shackleton's case, it was as basic as that. Perhaps I'm being a bit unfair, but certainly that was an element of it. In a sense, I guess it's the equivalent, what, these days to being an astronaut? <laughs> yeah, the analogy is not a bad one. Yeah, these guys were the astronauts of their age. You're absolutely right. And uh, they were fated and famed just as much as the astronauts were sort of 30 years ago for their accomplishments. So fit the the story of the endurance into the, the, the narrative of this heroic age. It, it, mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't uh, this, this imperial transatlantic expedition of 1914 to 17. Um, it certainly wasn't the first or the last um, uh, expedition in this heroic age. So well, what was, was it following on from and what were they looking for? 
Yeah, well, Shackleton's objective was was the pole. He'd been there in a previous expedition, the Nimrod expedition, and had failed. Then, of course, Scott had his second crack at the pole, you know, the one in which the Norwegians got there first and Scott's yeah. colleagues died on the way back. Uh, and that left the way open for, for, for Shackleton. Um, but, of, but, of course, the problem was Amundsen had, had, had found the pole. So for Shackleton, you know, really, what was there left? He knew he had to carry on doing great polar deeds if he was to stay in the limelight and retain his position as, as, as a polar hero. So he conceived the idea, and actually borrowed it from somebody else, but he made it his own of crossing the great white continent from one coast to the other, from uh, the Weddell Sea to the Ross Sea by, by way of the pole. And uh, he somehow or another managed to convince people that, that was something which really needed to be done for, well, for the sake of British prestige, if nothing else. So he set off for the pole, set off for Antarctica on the very eve of World War I, the 1st of August. And he was off, let's see, Ramsgate it was, on the 3rd of August. Um, and uh, he telegrammed Churchill, who was then Lord of the Admiralty, uh, offering the services of his men and his ship to the to the nation, and within an hour, Churchill had fired back a telegram which simply said, "Proceed," and he did. Um, they got as uh, they got as far as the plate, then from the plate down to South Georgia, and then from South Georgia, uh, they went on down into into Antarctica into the Weddell Sea. It was a particularly bad year for ice. And on the 18th of January, they became icebound, after which they, the ship was, was locked in the ice until it sank on the 21st of November of 1915. Uh, Shackleton's idea after he had to leave the ship, after he had to abandon the ship, was to stay with the ice until it carried him to the mouth of the Weddell Sea, at which point the ice would break up and they would take to the lifeboats, which eventually pretty much is what happened um, in April of the next year, they, they they took to their boats and tried to head west, couldn't make headway against the prevailing winds and currents, and so cut for um, what they called the hellish rock of Elephant Island. And once they got there, after six days of uh, absolutely incredible suffering, uh, Shackleton realized that if they stayed on the rock of Elephant Island, that sooner or later, one by one, they would perish. So... Shackleton, being a man of, of, of huge bravery, he set off to get help in the best of his lifeboats, a boat called the James Caird, only 22 foot long. And he could have set off for the Falklands, which was closer to about 500 miles away. But instead, he set off for South Georgia, which was 800 miles away because it was more downwind and down current. And after two weeks, they made landfall. And then he found himself on the wrong side of the island. All the whaling stations, which he was making for, were on the other side of the island. But in between, there was a very high mountainous chain called the Allardyce Range. So after nine days spent just recuperating from that awful journey, he then set off across the, the mountain chain with two of his colleagues, the captain of the Endurance, a man called Worsley, and an Irishman called Crean. And it was a 36-hour crossing, and eventually they got over, and they got down to the whaling station of Stromness, and from there, they took a whale catcher and headed on back to Elephant Island to relieve the men that they'd left there, 22 men. But they couldn't get through the ice, 
So they headed for the Falklands instead, which where they knew there was a radio station and could um, get in contact with the rest of the world. And then the Uruguayan government lent them a fishing boat called the Instituto de Pesca Número Uno. And they tried again with that, but couldn't get through. And then they headed for Punta Arenas in Chile, tried with an old wooden sailing uh, sealing schooner. Uh, and again, third time, couldn't get through. And eventually the Chilean government let, lent them uh, a steam tug. And that got through on the 30th of August of 1916. An incredible story. 28 men went into the Weddell Sea and it shouldn't have happened. But 28 men came out. Yeah, it, it is amongst astonishing stories. There is no more astonishing story. So these men survived, what, two years in the yeah. Antarctic? How did they, I mean, presumably they had the provisions. How did they eat? How did they warm themselves? Uh, well, during the winter they spent on the endurance, they moved their headquarters on the decks down into the tween decks where there's better insulation. And in fact, they were quite jolly there. You know, they, they, they had music, they had books, they had good food, plenty of it, relatively warm. There was a, a stove there uh, and they did very well. But then the ice turned against them. The ship was crushed. They had to abandon uh, the ship in October of, of 1915 and take to the ice. And a month later, she was, you know, she was taken by the ice. Um, and then it became very difficult indeed. But, you know, they were resilient. And whatever you might say about Shackleton, there are certain things you cannot take away from him. And one was his his determination, not necessarily to, to win, because he never actually achieved anything he set out to do, but his determination to get through and second, there was his, his bravery. He had that in spades. And finally, of course, there was that other factor, the thing that everybody talks about in relation to Shackleton, and that was leadership. I mean, he really was, uh, you know, one of the greatest leaders of men ever. And yeah, the combination... A really story. So, yeah. Um, so, but, but your book is not really about Shackleton. It's about the ship beneath the ice. And you're... Discovery of it, uh, the most, the world's most unreachable ship epic was always described as. Were you, in a sense, um, uh, Menson? Were you inspired by Shackleton to do this because it's a very forbidding project? Um, yes and no. Uh, we, uh, you know, as, as a marine archaeologist, this was this was the big one. This was even bigger than the Titanic, but she was known as the unreachable endurance. Uh, and that's how most of, us, most of us thought of that ship. Uh, our, our project was actually 10 years in the making. Uh, the first, the ideal was conceived in a coffee shop in, off the old Brompton Road in South Kensington. It was myself and another guy. And it wasn't my idea. It was my friend's idea. He was the one who said, well, it's, it's an interesting story. We were meeting to talk about actually going out to look for Scott's Terra Nova, which is a ship he took with him on his voyage of no return. And uh, on the day we were meeting in that coffee shop, the newspapers reported that the Terra Nova had been discovered. And my friend then said to me, well, you know, what about the endurance? And I said to him, you know, forget it. You know, she's, you know, she's under the perennial pack ice of the Weddell Sea, what Shackleton called the worst part of the worst sea on Earth. You know, she's really deep down. The technology is not ready for this. And, and thank God, you know, he didn't listen to me at all. Uh, but that is that was the moment of, of inception. 
And I think, I'm not saying at that moment we were thinking those terms, but certainly later we were very keen to find this wreck so that it would be discovered by what we considered ourselves to be a responsible archaeological body of people. Uh, in those days, we worked under the Flotilla Trust um, during the, the, the last, the successful expedition to find it. We were under the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. But the idea was to was to find her, to record her, to explain and to report her, uh, not to take her apart, not to take anything from her. It was purely archaeological. There was non-touch, non-disturbance. And really speaking, I think we were uh, inspired at some level by what had happened to the Titanic back in the, uh, what was it, mid-80s, wasn't it? Uh, you remember Bob Ballard found, found the Titanic, but within a short period of time, um, everybody was sort of uh, treating that site as a kind of a, a you know, a help yourself, smash and grab type thing. And, and the wreck, I've got to be careful what I say here, but my perception was. Yeah, so, so tell me a little bit about the team um, and, and where the, the funding was from a foundation, I assume, in terms of. Yeah. Yeah, it was a considerable project. I mean, how, how much money was involved in terms of need? Oh, the, the... Yeah, um, because the money was given through, you know, to 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 the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. I can't obviously talk about our donors and things like that, but the money came from from the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust, and yes, it was. And and how many uh, in in your team? I mean, you talked about Shackleton's team. How many? Uh, I assume it was mostly men, men and women who. Yeah, who, a very very mixed bag of people: scientists, uh, technicians, some amazing amazing technicians, and they were the guys who ran the subsea side of things uh, during the first project. We had a guy called Channing Thomas, and he was in charge of the AUV team. The um, autonomous underwater vehicles we used. Uh, we lost our, our main search vehicle. Um, that was a huge disaster, and that ended the project in 2019. But we learned from our mistakes. We came back again in 2019, and this time we had a different type of kit called the Sabretooth, uh, the main distinction being that it was actually, wasn't a, an autonomous vehicle, but rather it was tethered to the surface by a fiber optic cable. We had sometimes six to seven kilometers of cable running from the ship uh, to the saber-toothed vehicle, three kilometers below, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. But it meant that we always knew where that vehicle was three-dimensionally. And also it meant that we were getting our data in, in real time. We could watch the sonar waterfall. As right. well, was there a moment, um, Menson, when this autonomous vehicle found the endurance? Did you know where it, I mean, did you have a reasonably good idea where it should be? Yeah. yeah. Um, <coughs> I said the project was 10 years in the making. And I was myself, and there was another guy called John Kingsford, an old and very dear friend of mine, runs a company called DOS, Deep Ocean Search. He and I, years back, were tasked with, I, I was tasked with finding the ship. He was tasked with putting together the ship and all the hardware and stuff like that. We worked together very closely for a long time. But my job was primarily to go into the archives to search, research, and draw up a, a search box. Um, we had something to go on. That was a set of coordinates which were left by the endurance's captain. The only thing 
was that those coordinates were not uh, an observed position, by, by which I mean they were not a sextant position. It was actually an estimated position. So there was a lot of doubt hanging over that position. Uh, and I had to draw up a, a search box, which in the end was 107 square nautical miles. And in that season, 2019, we failed. The autonomous underwater vehicle just simply disappeared off the map. We covered over half the box, and then we used to meet up with it periodically every six to eight hours, what we called a, a handshake, during which we would uh, interrogate its various payload systems and then release it back into autonomous mode to, to pursue the search. And then it just did not turn up for one of those handshakes. And to this day, we, we're not sure of what happened. But the second time round, we had a, a different system, a different way of doing things. And we had a fabulous team of technicians, all run by this amazing underwater engineer called Nico Vincent. And uh, he brought an incredible group of French uh, hydrographers and underwater specialists with him. And we had a, a really great team leader called, um, uh, called John, uh, John Shears. And everything just fell into place the second time round. Um, we were very lucky. Uh, in the three years since we'd previously been there, the pack had loosened up incredibly and there were leads and ways into the search box everywhere. Was Too that bad. a consequence in some ways, Manson, of um, global warming? Has the yeah, has the neighbourhood, if that's the right word to use, has it changed yeah. dramatically in the last hundred years? Would, would oh, Shackleton yeah. even recognise it today? Yeah. When you read the diaries and compare what they were seeing to what we saw, uh, yes. I mean, within my lifetime, global warning and the destruction caused by emissions and all that, we all know what I'm talking about. You know, it's been incredibly destructive. And nowhere do you really see it, see it with more clarity than, than down there in the Antarctic. And there's, you see it at all sorts of levels, but the disappearing sea ice is one of them. When we're there in 2019, the ice pack was a hard carapace of almost impenetrable thickness. It was gnarled multi-year stuff as tough as teak and yes we had to battle our way every inch of it and yes we got stuck a few times last year i could not believe the difference in just three years you know it was thinner it was looser there was no uh, pressure no muscularity uh, to the pack at all in 2019 you felt you were within the coils of a boa constrictor Last year, it was nothing like that at all. We just zigged up, zigzagged our way through to the search area. So would you, uh, a few years ago, would you be able to break the ice to discover the boat? Yeah, I mean, there were moments of ice breaking last year, certainly. Uh, I seem to remember the last five years in the search box. That was a little bit tough. Uh, and once we were in the search box, uh, we, we had to... Um, coordinate very carefully. We were getting very good satellite imagery, which was telling us what the ice was doing, where it was coming from, how fast it was moving, you know, which ice was most suitable for the ship. And rather than, I think we learned, one of the lessons that I certainly learned, and I think some of the others did too, but we didn't really discuss it, was that when we went in in 2019, I had a bit of an attitude problem. I thought I could you know, pretty much subdue the ice. And in the end, it was anything but... That was the, the Indiana Jones in you coming out, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I was certainly horsewhipped, you know, by the ice. You could say that. But the second time round, uh, the attitude change was instead of us trying to impose our will on the ice, it was the ice trying to impose its will on us. So, so let's get to the... Let's get to the, the ship beneath the ice. When you... Yeah. I mean... Was it frozen in time when you found it? 
Yeah, it was one of the most incredible sights ever. I mean, I've spent my whole life working with shipwrecks. Now, I, I think I can probably get away with saying this. I think there's nobody living, at least I know of, who's seen more deep water wooden shipwrecks than me. And they were all, to one extent or another, broken up, broken up by impact with the seabed. Usually they break up longitudinally. A couple of them had broken up thwart ships. But the endurance was different. Uh, there are a number of factors there. When we launched this project at the Royal Geographical Society in 2018, it would have been, I, I did make um, several predictions. One was that she'd be proud of the seabed, two, that she'd be upright, uh, three, that she'd be in an excellent state of preservation, and four, uh, and here I was going out on the limb just a wee bit, I said that she, the likelihood was that she'd be three-dimensionally intact. And the reason I said that was that during the course of the research, we found the complete set of her builder's plans, and that confirmed that she was what they were saying she was at the time, which was that she was the second strongest wooden-built ship ever next to the to Nansen's Fram. And realizing just how incredibly strongly built she was, I, I, I thought that if ever there was a ship that could have withstood impact with a seabed, it was the Endurance. And indeed, um, that's what happened. You know, she did not tear herself apart on impact. So we had this incredible sight of, of the Endurance just sitting up there upright on the mud, just looking bold and beautiful and, and in a really superb state of preservation. You could see her paintwork. You could count the fastenings in her timber. It's an astonishing story. A, a couple of questions. Firstly, um, what has it taught us that we didn't already know, given that you found it in such pristine condition? Are there yeah. secrets that yeah. allow us to rethink the whole Shackleton enterprise and indeed yeah. uh, the nature of exploration at the beginning of the 20th century? As an archaeologist, my measure usually is, uh, you know, what does something tell us that we do not already know? That is my yardstick normally. And it's very hard for me to say that there's much in the endurance that we don't already know. We do have, you know, all the her constructional details. There's nothing about her build that we don't already know, really speaking. And we know pretty much what is inside. We have detailed accounts by the diarists. So there really are uh, no surprises in archaeological terms. Um, but what it does do is it, if you like, it illuminates the whole Shackleton endurance saga um, for our generation. And Shackleton, you know, I just think he's, he's a wonderful example of, you know, pushing to, to expand our, our boundaries, always to be reaching for the horizon, the next thing. Uh, and I think it's 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 good that we tell the story again and again and again. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. I mean, you'd think having been shipwrecked in the Antarctic and surviving, you would never go back. But he went back in 1921-22, his last Antarctic yeah. project. What happened on that one? Yeah, he went back on the quest on one last hurrah. A bunch of, uh, they'd all got older, tidal lions almost, and Shackleton wasn't in the best of health. He had a heart attack along the way. And when they got to, to South Georgia, and uh, they were all very excited that day. Uh, the diarist described how he was running around the decks like a school kid. You know, they're all pointing out the route they'd taken when, they, when they'd when they crossed over the island. 
uh, you know, all those years before. And then that evening, that night, he died in his bunk. Um, yeah, it, it uh, and later, of course, he was buried on South Georgia, the old way. Which is, which is appropriate enough. Um, what will become of the ship you found? Will it? Did you bring it back and will it go on um, exhibition? No, we, we didn't touch anything. And this wasn't a kind of, you know, bring them back alive type expedition. It was purely archaeological. You know, we weren't doing it because it was there. And I don't think we were really doing it, you know, like the moonshot to be the first. I, I do believe that we were doing it for the right reasons. We were sort of on the shiny path to, to knowledge kind of thing. Um, the wreck is going to be, we are conferring very closely with colleagues in, in a couple of prominent heritage organizations, and they will look after the ship into the future. We have no plans to go back. What happens beyond my lifetime? I don't know, but we have no immediate plans. Menson, you mentioned earlier that you grew up on the Falkland Islands in Port Stanley. Everyone, of course, is familiar with the Falkland Wars. It's still a part of the world of great political controversy. I actually went uh, a few years ago to Ushaya, the southernmost Argentinian town, which I don't think is that far, maybe from certainly from the Falklands. Um, is there any political controversy to what you're doing, a, a Falkland Islands expedition or certainly a British expedition to rediscover this boat, which, uh, if, if you know, some been, people might say, well, this was a colonial enterprise and a colonial expedition? No, it was never that. And as far as I'm aware, I haven't seen any pushback at all from, you know, for political reasons at all. I mean, I could be wrong. Not that I'm aware of. I but, mean, uh, i got to say the Argentines, in fact, were pretty gracious about the whole thing. Uh, some people are seeing the Arctic and the Antarctic as the next chapter in global political rivalries. Do you have a, a take on that and sort of aspirations well, of the, the Americans and the Chinese and, and uh, other superpowers? I, I, I mean, according to the Antarctic Treaty, I mean, nobody owns Antarctica, but you know, of course, I am aware of certain political aspirations down there. You know, how can you not be when you're steaming around and you're getting radio, radio messages on the bridge to say you're just entering Argentine waters when you're actually in the Antarctic? So, I mean, it goes on. I mean, we're all aware of it. Nobody takes much notice of these things, I don't think. But, you know, I'm an archaeologist. What do I know? Let's end. We, we began with Darwin. Uh, we haven't talked. We've talked a lot about humans. We talked about uh, Shackleton and his endurance, a remarkable man and a remarkable story. But what about the wildlife, um, mm. Menson, uh, the, the, the fish and the birds? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about them and their role in both the, the sinking of the endurance and its discovery. Uh, well, um, Shackleton, you know, they, they, they managed to rescue three tons of supplies from the ship. But other than that, they depended on the seals and the penguins to survive. Uh, on the ice, it was, it was mainly uh, dailies and, and emperor penguins. And later on, it was gentoos and chin straps. Um, and the seals were, were mostly crabby to seals. You know, the odd Weddell, Weddell seal thrown in. That was that was about it. Uh, I mean, 
I what I mean I what I did notice when I was down there, you know, reading the diaries and reading Shackleton, uh, that we were not seeing anything like what Shackleton saw a hundred years before, and that was quite disturbing in some ways. He was seeing whales everywhere. Yes, I mean we did have a few minkies pop up at the stern of the ship, but I didn't see any blue whales. I didn't see any humpies. I didn't see any uh, right whales, um, uh, fin whales or anything like that the entire time I was down there. Although I do know from what I've seen off the Falklands, they are making a comeback. And also the penguin population, it, it seemed to have changed demographics since when Shackleton was there. Uh, we do know that the penguins or certain species of penguins, and particularly the dailies, are in trouble because the krill is disappearing in certain parts, because the ice is disappearing and they depend on the sea ice um, to survive, to go beyond juvenile stage. You know, they graze on the bottom of the sea ice, so it's not hard to understand that there's no sea ice, there's no krill, and krill are the the keystone um, species in, in all the food chains. I mean, krill eat all the phytoplankton and everything is bigger than krill, eats them. I mean, seabirds, I mean, fish, I mean, seals, everything up to the giant blue whale, which ingests nothing else but krill. You know, it's, it's a very, very simple food chain. You know, you have phytoplankton, you have krill, and then you have blue whales in three simple steps, you know, from the tiniest thing that you can't even see to the biggest creature in the history of the planet in three simple steps. Uh, so you take away the krill, which is what is happening around parts of the Antarctic Peninsula now, and then everything is in trouble. So it's it's incredibly alarming. And you wrap that up with things like ocean warming, uh, ocean acidification, which nobody talks about. And that's coming out as like a freight train down. If, if we hit the end of century projections, then everything is in trouble. And then, of course, there's the changing climate down there, the disappearing of the uh, disappearance and crumbling of the glaciers, which everybody knows about. It just goes on and on. And all these things at a certain level interconnect. They're so fragile. Um, so, yeah, I, I worry a lot about this.